This is the Ask a Death Doula podcast, a platform of free education on how to have the best end-of-life experience possible by knowing how to live your best life now. With experienced hospice, oncology, and wellness nurse, Suzanne B. O'Brien. everyone and welcome to this edition of Ask a Death Doula. My name is Suzanne O'Brien. Today I am thrilled to have one of my favorite people. Um, I have to tell you that this woman has had a huge influence over me and my journey and it is such an honor to have with us today Barbara Carnes RN. So I'm going to just share with you a little bit about her background. Um, she needs really no introduction, but let me just tell you a few things about Barbara. So Barbara Carnes RN is an internationally respected speaker, educated, um, educator, author, and thought leader on matters of end of life. She is a renowned authority to explain the dying process to families, healthcare professionals, and the community at large. Barbara has held both clinical and leadership positions, including staff nurse, clinical supervisor, and executive director at hospices and home health care agencies. An award-winning nurse and end-of-life educator in 2018, Barbara was honored by the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization as Hospice Innovator. She was also awarded the International Humanitarian Woman of the Year in 2015 from the World Humanitarian Awards, as well as the Heart of Healthcare Award from Kansas University Nursing and the, the Horizon Award for Educator from Nebraska Methodist College. Barbara Carnes, you need no introduction. Thank you so very much for taking your time to be with us today on Ask a Death Doula. Well, thank you, so Suzanne. I think we're we're going to have a good discussion. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. I remember the first time I got to talk with you, and it was just so organic. And I thought we could go on for hours just because we've been in this space together. Um, we're very passionate about you know what's needed and how to educate people in again something that every single person is going to experience and how it can go. Um, the best that it possibly can. So it is wonderful to have a podcast um, with you today. And today's topic is going to be, so first of all, Barbara Carnes has been doing education and has booklets um, that are extraordinary. They are the best out there that I've ever seen. And they cover so many different aspects, which is so beautiful because they're really user-friendly, digestible, and completely empowering. But today we're going to talk about pain at end of life, which is so very important to understand because for me as a hospice nurse, it was one of the biggest challenges for the families taking care of their loved ones at end of life, the medications, understanding pain. And now on top of that, our culture is dealing with the opioid crisis. And there's so many misconceptions about pain meds and end of life and how does that work. So I'm so excited to talk about your latest booklet. Um, and we're going to just jump right in. So why did you feel it was important to, at this point, do a book on pain at end of life? Well, a, a couple of reasons. One is the opioid crisis, and mm -hmm. people are, are terrified 
of narcotics and therefore they either don't know how to use them appropriately or don't use them when it is appropriate. So that fear out there is one of the things. And the other, what really prompted the booklet is I did a workshop um, on pain at end of life for healthcare professionals. And at the end of that webinar, um, I opened it up for questions. Now these are all healthcare professionals. And the questions that came to me shocked me about the lack of knowledge for end of life pain management. And I thought, you know, we, I really need to do something to um, educate people about end of life. And that's the operative word. Yeah. Taking care of someone at end of life is different than taking care of someone who's going to get better. But most people don't know that. And so our work in end of life mm -hmm. is judged by how people get better unless we teach them otherwise. And that applies not just to end of life care across the board, but it applies to pain management as well. Barbara, that's so beautifully said. And it also frightens me a bit that you said that you were talking to medical professionals who had um, a very uh, large lack of understanding about the pain management at end of life. So if they, it if they had it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they they didn't understand it, right. and I thought, okay, you know, yep. I'll I'll do what I can. Let's get the information out there. So beautiful. So if they don't understand, you can only imagine that families who, again, there's so many um, elements that are contributing to the perfect storm with end of life right now, and uh, you know they're so fearful. So the medications are such a huge thing, and you're right. Many, many times that my families were so frightened just with the end of life experience in general that they didn't even open the medications. They sometimes didn't even know the medications were in the house, um, and they definitely did not want to give the medications if they didn't feel comfortable with how to do that because they were afraid they were going to do it wrong. So let's start with the basics. What is, in your opinion, that difference um, between end-of-life pain management for that patient who is dying and, and somebody who's getting well? Well, first off, dying is not painful. And uh, disease causes pain. Mm -hmm. Although we, the watchers, interpret what we're seeing in the, the body releasing and dying, we interpret that as being painful. Mm -hmm. So first, first thing to know is that disease causes pain. So you're going to look at the person's disease history. Right. And right. if pain, and you know, there's a lot of diseases that people die from that don't cause pain. Right. But there's also a lot that do. So if pain is part of the disease process, then you're going to medicate and address that pain until the last breath. And know that as death gets closer, 
you literally have to play with the pain medicine because there isn't any standard take two aspirins and your headache will go away. Mm-hmm. You have to play with the medicine and you probably have to increase it because the body's shutting down. So mm-hmm. it's not functioning normally. So it's not processing the pain medicine normally. Right. If, if pain is not part of the disease history, then just because they're dying doesn't mean that they need a narcotic or that they're in pain. In fact, what their body feels like is heavy, tired, ache all over, kind of like when you have the flu. Mm-hmm. Well, you wouldn't take morphine for the flu. You'd mm-hmm. take a couple of Tylenol. And that's very appropriate if pain has not been part of the disease process. Mm-hmm. Give them a couple of Tylenol if you think or interpret that their body language is telling you that they're a little bit uncomfortable. That's beautiful. So go with the history. So you're right. So the, the thing, again, most people have not seen the dying process and it could be interpreted that that person looks like they're in pain. And I think it's just the uncomfortable all around newness of the body, how the body shuts down. But, it, but you want to look at the history. Did they have, before they went into that dying process, did they have any history of pain? Because if they did, then you're going to be carrying through with treating that most likely. Um, and if not, know that those are natural ways that the body's shutting down and it's not a painful process per se, but that again, you can use. And let's talk about this. What about nonverbal uh, clues and cues that people are uncomfortable? And that's something again, that people are like, well, if the person's in their deep sleep state, how will I know if they need pain meds or more medication? And there are ways that we can um, assess that, correct? There are ways, but mm-hmm. for me, the, the key mm-hmm. is the disease history. Okay. Um, because the, 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 what occurs in the weeks before death that is normal is misinterpreted. Um, Restlessness, that's normal. The picking of the bedclothes, the the can't getting them settled, the random hand movements, picking at the air. Um, That is normal part of dying. That does not signify pain. If if the person wasn't in the dying process and they were doing that, Mm -hmm. then you would look and try and figure out why. But we already know why, because they're in the dying process. That's Um, beautiful. Sleeping sleeping with their eyes partially open. Mm -hmm. Um, Their breathing getting slower and slower or maybe getting faster and faster. All of that is normal. That they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And they're doing a good job. (laughs) And they're doing a great job. Nothing bad is happening. It's very sad watching your loved one die and particularly Mm. not understanding that what is happening is, is normal is not pathological because most of us interpret all that behavior 
as pathological. And we would right. if they weren't in the dying process. Oh, that's so beautiful and um, so powerful. So I always say that education is the key to everything. And that's what we're doing here and helping to uh, educate on this process. And the other thing that I tend to say a lot is, you know, letting families know that what they're seeing is a natural part of the dying process and not to be afraid. So again, these are the bodies doing what it needs to do. And these people are doing a great job. And although it is very difficult to watch, it is a very natural um, process and it's not that they're in pain, it's a natural. So that was very, very important to um, share. Now, can we talk about oh, the, wait, yes, wait, yes, wait. yeah. Um, I, as you were talking, I just thought of some, uh, an, a symbol that mm -hmm. I use that people can, re people relate to stories. Yep. They relate to stories better than they do facts. Mm -hmm. And what I asked them to imagine is that little chicken, that little chick that works so hard to get out of its shell. And we, you know, our instinct mm. is, well, let's help that little chick. Let's crack that shell open more and help them. Part of the chicken's life and the way to go on living is to work and get out of its shell. That's what we're doing when mm. we're dying from a disease. We're working really hard to get out of this shell of a body. And, mm -hmm. it, and it is hard work, but it is normal. That's how we get out of this shell. I love that because then when we are out of the shell, that calm moment, that peaceful moment is a triumph. It's a triumph. Yes. Um, and what that reminds me of in another little story, I was at an event and there was a woman telling me, you know, 30, because people hold on to the end of life, how that goes forever and ever. So we always want to have it go as well as possible um, for multiple reasons. But she was telling me when her mother died, there was a nurse that was with her, an aide that was with her. And um, the aide, they, they were talking, she was breathing very, very rapidly and quickly as her body was shutting down. And it was very uncomfortable to the daughter. And the aide said to her, her mother, knows she has to go somewhere and is working really hard to get there. And she said, just when she shared that information about that, it brought her so much peace, um, knowing that that's what was happening, that her mother was working really hard to get to the next world or whatever your belief is. So I love those stories and they're really, they're really comforting. I love that. Um, thank you for sharing that. So Barbara, one of the biggest things that, again, um, has come up for myself as a hospice nurse around this issue of end-of-life and medications is addiction and also giving a dose that's going to be the last dose or the one that, quote-unquote, kills their family member, which has prevented people from getting pain relief and medication when they need it. So can we talk about the reality of addiction and narcotics at the end of life? Yes, we can, because mm -hmm. that is one of the major fears that families have. Mm -hmm. And I, I get, I can't tell you how many emails a week, I mean, a week mm -hmm. saying, a hospice killed my mom. Yep. She was fine. They came in, gave her morphine, and three hours later, she was dead. They killed her. And the thing is, mm. they, did, they didn't kill her, and the morphine didn't kill her. 
right. in the days to hours before death comes from disease, the body is not functioning as it normally would. The heart is not pumping the blood through the body at a normal rate or speed. Blood pressure is probably next to nothing. You might not even be able to get it. The, the circulation isn't there. And you give someone some morphine um, by mouth or by rectum or by skin, you know, you don't have to use needles mm -hmm. um, at the end of life. Um, and that person dies in a few hours, that morphine has gone nowhere. It has not circulated through the body. It never reached the heart. It's probably still in the stomach or in the rectum or on the skin because it's the morphine has to be in your bloodstream circulating for it to do anything. Mm -hmm. So that morphine did not kill mom um, or the patient because a lot of nurses, a lot of healthcare people believe the same thing in that, you know, I gave the morphine and two hours later, this woman was dead. It was the morphine that killed her. It was yeah. not. Yeah. She died because she was dying when you gave her the medicine. The other thing about morphine that people don't understand is in the days to hours, even weeks before death from disease, if pain has been part of the disease process, the pain becomes more difficult to manage because the body is shutting down, because it's not circulating through the bloodstream at a normal rate, and because the disease is, process, is progressing, is destroying more of the mm -hmm. body in its path. Mm -hmm. So you have to play, literally, play with the dosage mm -hmm. at end of life to, to bring comfort. And people don't understand literally that you have to play with it because right. the, nothing, nothing is normal. Nothing yeah. operates under normal circumstances. Agreed. And even if somebody had great pain control prior to them going into that last phase of end of life, that does not mean that that dosaging is going to continue to be effective because things are changing. Um, so you have to play and you have to go with what you're seeing. But I think that this is so critically important for people to understand. And this is what I really try and teach in my, my workshops and seminars is that the, it's a question of this, that person is dying because they have a disease process, right? So if they, it's a question if the, the medication either is going to let them die in a comfortable state or not. It's not going to change anything whether they're going to die or not. They're going to die 100% because they have a disease process. They are at end of life. So that medication is not creating the death. So it's, it's whether we're going to, and again, if it's fear of all of these things, then it's our responsibility to seek out proper instruction education and again the reinforcement of understanding dosaging and how things works 
takes repetition and several times for people to get really comfortable with it. And that comfortable level is going to allow them to be in the place where they can, again, help medicate their loved ones because people, again, are usually at home. So, so important for us to understand because I agree with you that we get this all the time that hospice came in and killed my mom with the medication. And that is a thousand times incorrect. And it's, and it's tragic that that's being said. So we really want to get underneath that of what that is. And I think you did a beautiful job explaining that. Well, now let's talk about addiction because I, I hear addiction a lot. Yep. Yep. And so there is a thin line in our body between pain and no pain. Mm -hmm. And in acute care, you go in and you have a, a gallbladder surgery, they're going to give you more pain medicine than you have pain. They're going to exceed that line. You get your pain shot, you go to sleep, and then you wake up. You go to sleep because you've gotten more pain medicine than pain. The In acute care, you don't have time to play for with the dosage to find that thin line between pain and no pain. So in acute care, we automatically overdosed a little bit to address the pain. It's when continually in acute care, you are over the line that you then have addiction because when you're over the line, the pain medicine is working on the body, the healthy Mm -hmm. part of the body. And that's what becomes addicted. Mm -hmm. So in end of life pain medicine in the months before death, your goal is to find the line is to find that thin line between pain and no pain. And that's where the word play comes in. In the month before death, you adjust and work with dosages to have the line. And as long as you have the line, you won't have addiction. So what do you, and at the same time, you're watching to see that you don't exceed the line. So the first thing that happens is you go to, you go to sleep. Now you have to watch when you're over the line. You have to take that into consideration because generally a person is so tired and exhausted from living in pain that they are gonna sleep for a little bit. But then after you get past that part of the line, there's gonna be confusion, Uh, slurred speech, then as you go on past, you're seeing little green men on the ceiling, and then the breathing slows down and gets slower and slower, and then they stop breathing. Notice all the things that you look for that say the line has been exceeded. And when that line has been exceeded, what do you do? You cut back on the medication or you, you make the, the time between the doses longer. You're going to play 
with the medicine to get back to the line between pain and no pain. And yeah. you won't have it. Yeah, that's, it's really important that people understand this. And what I have found with my patients is, um, again, sometimes the introduction of a first dosage really makes them tired because they are exhausted, but also their body adjusts to it. And you want to, our, our way that we work as nurses is trying to, again, teach that pain scale of zero to 10. And again, if somebody has pain of an eight, nine, um, they're not going to enjoy anything in their life, any visits with grandchildren or any of the above. But if it's at a three or a four, where it's not all that they're thinking about, they can really engage in what's going on in their day. And that's the goal. It's not to be knocked out. It's to bring it down to, again, a controlled place where they can enjoy um, and it's not incessantly bothering them. So I think that exactly when you say to, you know, start that dose and play with where that fine line is, and we usually want that a four or below on a pain scale, is super important. What about, Barbara, people who have had past addiction problems? Should they be withheld medication at the end of life? I'm, and I'm giggling because I have my own, obviously, ideas of this. Um, no, I, I, mm -hmm. you know, if, if they're dying, then addiction right. isn't an issue. Correct. It isn't an if, if they're not dying, if they don't have a life-threatening illness, then of course you're not going to give someone a narcotic. But right. if they're approaching to end of life and they have pain, of yes. course you're going to give them something. Thank you. Exactly. I mean, this is a whole different scenario. So, and I love what, you know, how you explained, and that's really important that how pain works. So if you have pain and you, you know, you give a narcotic or something that's going to stop the pain, um, again, it's the, the dosaging that's extremely important that you're not over medicating because the body will just subside the pain receptors, not create an, you know, this euphoric type of addiction process. Um, so it's really important to understand the medications, the dosaging. And again, I find that my families, that's really where the ball, one of the huge places where the ball drops. What do you think is the best way for us to help our families understand the medication regime. I, I really ask for the hospice nurse to teach it several times. I want families to go over it, to show the hospice nurse, actually draw up the medications, um, because then they're very, again, they, they really squash their fears surrounding it so that when they do, if they do need to give it at that two o'clock in the morning, they have a much better understanding about it. Well, it, it, it goes to education, 90% of our work Mm -hmm. in end of life is education mm -hmm. and with with pain management we're not making the pain go away right we're covering it up right and we have to keep that cover on the pain medicine on the pain all the time because yeah. it's there you're just covering it up so the pain medicine must be given around the clock on a regular basis. You don't want to wait till they start hurting again right. to then give them the pain medicine, which is what we tend to think we should do. Right. And that in acute care, sure, that's fine. But remember, we're dealing with end of life pain management, which is entirely different right. than getting well pain management. So we have to keep the cover on. Um, 
And I think that's the one of the hardest things for families to understand mm-hmm. because they see you give them the pain medicine, they're talking, they're interacting, they're feeling better, and it's, oh, well, I don't need to give them any more pain medicine. It worked. Right. And then 24 hours later, mom's back where she started being miserable and the family doesn't understand why. Uh, you. So this is everything. So the education on how pain works in the body is so important and to stay ahead of that pain is critical to the pain management, which is exactly what you just said. Um, so for me, letting people know that once, like when that pain is going up, you have got to get it. You have to cut it off with your medicine at a certain point before it, it's like a runaway train. Because once it runs away and it's up to that eight, nine, it's almost impossible to bring down. And for me, I've had, I've had uh, patients who, you know, they, they do feel again that their life, they're out of control. They don't, you know, their body's starting to decline. So one of the only things that they sometimes have a decision about is whether they take their medicine or not. And I've had patients say, no, I don't need it. I don't need it because again, it's that sense of control. They get up to a pain of an eight, nine. They said, okay, I'll take my pill. And it doesn't work at that point. So yeah. this, this staying ahead of it is Again, probably one of the most important pieces to teaching families because it can make the difference with everything. So thank you for that. what What we have to think about is that when a person is in pain, Mm -hmm. it's like they're in a box Mm -hmm. and all they can see is the sides of that box. Mm. And and you don't want them to live like that. Uh, But in pain... There's nothing outside the box. And um, so to help families understand what their loved one is experiencing and give the family the knowledge of how to treat their loved one, um, that's key. It's absolutely key to pain management. Beautifully, beautifully said, beautifully said. So as we know, um, and I just want to touch on two different things here. So pain is a very obviously important piece to manage. But can we talk for a minute about the difference between um, nerve pain and bone pain? And again, we've talked about narcotic, which is our main uh, medication that we use with pain. But what about for if somebody's having nerve pain or if they're having actual bone pain? Um, is there anything different we can use to help manage those type of pain processes? Bone pain is one of the absolute hardest Mm. to manage and to to live with and to deal with. It's just horrific. And um, what I have have found is that you narcotics aren't enough. Right. Um, That you've got to have um, other kinds of medication with the narcotic that may help right and and i say may mm-hmm. be, because um it's really really difficult um right. to find comfort for bane bone and nerve pain but narcotics aren't enough i will say right. that Right. So what what we wanted to share here is that, you know, again, I love that we're really thinking outside the box and playing, you know, you say play and you really do have to, again, sometimes get a little bit creative with understanding that it's not only going to be 
always a narcotic if there is other involvement. So, um, you know, play, we've had success with even ibuprofen at times or an anti-inflammatory for bone pain. And then of course, nerve pain um, requires sometimes the gabapentin. And it's a combination that can sometimes be the key to unlocking, again, the comfort level for those um, patients that are experiencing multiple. So I love being open and knowing that we have to, again, just investigate and think outside the box for those. So one of the questions that we get a lot is, and sometimes, again, our patients will refuse their pain med because they are worried about constipation. Yeah. So can we talk about, again, the constipation that goes along with narcotic use in pain management? It, it just amazes me that healthcare workers don't just automatically mm-hmm. know that if you give a narcotic, you have to give a laxative. Mm-hmm. It, they go together. You cannot use them separately. And right. that's whether it's acute care or end of life care. Yeah. Laxatives and narcotics go together. And yet, you know, you know as well as I do how often narcotics are prescribed and given, and there's never a mention of a laxative. Right. The narcotic slows down the in- everything in the body, including the intestine. Right. And whether you're eating or not, your body makes poop, yep. and you've got to get it out. Yes. And so you must have a laxative to stimulate that intestine to get the poop out. Exactly. So I always tell um, people that the minute that there is a narcotic introduced on the medication regimen, that you have got to see that there's a stool softener and laxative on that bar as well. Like they go hand in hand, not always are you going to need them, but yeah, probably you are because the thing is, is that not only does the narcotic slow down the intestinal um, process, but we're slowing down because our body has a disease. We, we're not drinking as much. We're not moving as much. So all of these factors are going to lead to, again, um, probability of being constipated. We have to keep those, those stools moving out. It is imperative for comfort and imperative for the whole process. So I agree with you. It's amazing. That, so that's the first thing I teach people. If you have a narcotic being ordered, do you have a, a laxative ordered? <laughs> Look for that. Yeah. Absolutely. Hand in hand. Hand in hand. I love it. Um, again, it's a get, you know, we always are talking about the comfort for people and being constipated is extremely uncomfortable just amongst other things that go on. So well, and then they get, they get impacted yes. and then you have to remove the impaction and that's oh, it's very painful. Yes. You know, it's, yeah. it's, and it, and what's awful is that that all can be avoided. So exactly. easily avoided. Exactly. So we want people to be aware of that. So one of the things I love about morphine besides so much, so I often will say that if you give me one thing at end of life, I'll take the morphine. And if there's one thing in life, I'll take water. (laughs) Like if I had my choice and the morphine, I don't think that people understand how wonderful morphine is for breathing issues. So not only for pain management, but to help with people who are having shortness of breath. And would you like to talk a little bit about that as well? Well, um, yes, because um, we tend to 
I'm going to, an old saying, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yep. And, and so we figure um, that um, morphine has this bad PR image. Right. Well, one of the, aside from appropriate pain management and the operative word there is appropriate. Um, when there is breathing difficulty, morphine slows down breathing. And the thing is, you don't need a lot of it. Right. Just a little bit of morphine uh, will really make breathing easier. And as end of life approaches in the days to hours before death, when that body's shutting down and nothing's working right, a little bit of morphine can slow down the difficulty in the breathing. Yes, yes. Which is absolutely a godsend because when we can't breathe fully, you know, I don't think there's almost anything that can be worse than that, especially all around with anxiety. And, and it, you're right, it's a very tiny. So morphine has a very bad PR um, out there, but it's, it's so incredible and it works so quickly and it's a small amount and it also leaves the body relatively quickly. So I think, again, education is the key to everything. And we really want to empower our families to be able to have what they need to be able to be calm and to have, again, the best experience with something that is 100% guaranteed as part of our journey and can go well with the right support and education. And that's, of course, I think our main goal with everything. Um, well, and yeah. I, I think reassuring the family that, what mom is doing and breathing irregularities is part of the dying process right. is to remind or instruct the family that mom is not experiencing her right. body right. in the days to hours before death in the same way that she would if she weren't dying. Right. So it, it looks worse to us, the watchers, than it is on the person that's dying because they're so removed right. from their body that they're not experiencing it in the same way as they would if their body weren't dying. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. I think that there are situations where a little bit of morphine will help some will help a person but just because they're having breathing irregular irregularities doesn't mean that they need a little bit of morphine you look for how extreme uh, a situation is we don't always have to rely on drugs no, and I think that at the end of life process, I think the, the most beautiful thing here is sharing that that is a, what's happening is a natural part of the dying process and not to be afraid. Um, the little bit of morphine for breathing issues is, can be really effective if you do have prior to that, you know, um, COPD or emphysema or things of that nature. Sometimes, again, that little bit of morphine is, is wonderful. But at the end of life, yes, like you said, the person is so far removed from that, it's more uncomfortable for those seeing it 
And when we share with them that that is that natural part of the body shutting down, I think really alleviates a lot of that um, anxiety that is surrounding that um, experience. So that's so great and so important. We can have a podcast today without talking about the current state of what is happening in our world. And I, I know that, you know, we're all looking at this and it's happened so quickly, this virus that is affecting everyone globally um, on such a, in such a quick, quick way that thinking in terms of the work that we do, how can we support patients and families and the world at this critical moment that we're all in together um, in any way, shape or form. So I know Barbara for myself thinking that we are going to have people that are going to be experiencing their end of life with this disease, uh, this virus that's out there. What can we offer as far as any, any kind of insight or comfort? And I think it goes back to the work that we've been doing for years in, in sharing that there is support at the end of life and also picking our wishes with advanced directives um, ahead of time is again, critical, but also just wanted to know if you have any thoughts or insights on what we can say to somebody or any wisdom we can give people of the world right now to, um, to know that there is, uh, you know, we're going through this together and that what support or guidance can we share? What, one of the things that, I've been noticing from watching on television, basically, is the, um, how can I word this, is the, the intense grief and emotion of families not being able to be with their loved one when their loved one is dying. Mm. You know, families are not allowed to be at the bedside. They're not in a position where they can say goodbye. They're not in a position to have a, a, a funeral uh, or, mm-hmm. or viewing. I mean, all of our traditions are, are being challenged and forsaken because of this pandemic. And so our grieving is going to be more intense and harder. So what I want to, to say that brings me comfort is that we tend to think that a person who is dying dies like they do in the movies. You know, they say something profound and then they take their last breath. I just watched on The Good Doctor this week. Two people died and so unrealistic. It's like Judas Priest. This is not how people die. Um, So we don't, We but that's what we think. We think someone is alert like we are, and then they're dead. So the comfort can be found in that the person who is dying alone or in an ICU or a makeshift room, whatever, they're so removed from their body Mm -hmm. that they're not aware 
of what's going on. They're not aware that they're alone. They are busy getting out of their shell. So Mm -hmm. it is us, the survivors, that have the, the, I wasn't able to be there. So what I've recommended is that when you can't be there and you know that the ventilator's been taken off or that your loved one is dying, but you can't be there. And I had a a friend that this happened to last week, actually, um, is sit down in your home and almost just close your eyes and visualize your loved one in bed Mm -hmm. asleep. Mm-hmm. And you can, if you want to crawl in bed with them, do it. If you want to hold their hand in your mind, interact with that loved one and say to them what's in your heart. Say to them what you've always wanted to say and haven't. Talk mm-hmm. about the good times, talk about the difficult times, all in your mind as you're loving and supporting your loved one through this experience. You can't be there physically, but mentally and emotionally and spiritually, you are with them when you have them in your mind's eye and in your heart. And that is something you can do to say goodbye and to support them in their transition from this world to the next. They're not aware. They do not know what's going on. And that's important and comforting to know. I love that. Barbara, that was absolutely beautiful. So I think that is a perfect place um, to wrap up today. That's just wonderful words and so comforting again, especially in this time that we're experiencing. So Barbara, where can people find out more about you and get your um, tools that you offer? Uh, You can go to my website, which is bkbooks.com. And I've got DVDs. I've got books. I have a Facebook group Mm -hmm. called End of Life and Bereavement, which you can join. I'm on LinkedIn and have a group on LinkedIn, all kinds of social media. Look for me out there. And if you have questions or, or need some, some guidance, um, email me. Uh, I don't talk on the phone very much, but I do email and it's Barbara at bkbooks.com and I will respond. I have blogs, go to my website every, oh, I moved it up. I'm now writing a blog every week on end of life and on the virus and how we're living through this time. So, um, Sign up for the blog. You get an email with the blog and a link. Barbara Carnes, your information and education has been a gift to everyone, to families, to healthcare practitioners. It is the best. And the fact that you're writing a blog a week in this time is 
I'm so grateful. I'm just overjoyed. And your Facebook page, you're so very active. So I encourage everyone to please, especially when we need guidance at this time, um, to go ahead and to sign up for uh, Barbara's blog and also to go on her Facebook page. She is just a wealth of information and such a beautiful comfort. So Barbara Carnes, thank you so very much for being on Ask a Deaf Doula today. I am so grateful again to what you've done for me and what you've done for the world. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> okay, until next time, everyone. Thank you so much. This is Ask a Death Doula, and we will see you in the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of Ask a Death Doula. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a raving review. Subscribe, share, and send your questions. See you in the next episode.